Man, Psalm 88 uh, starts like this. Uh, if you look at the top of Psalm 88, before you get to verse 1, it'll say this. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So what we're about to read in Psalm 88 is actually a song. A song inspired by God for the people of God to be sung together in worship to God when they gather together at the temple. Now, this is something that's going to be a little foreign to us when we think about singing this song, because I'm not sure as honest as we are and try to be here at Redemption Hill that we've ever sung this song, but I want you to think about this as we, as we go. Verse 1, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out to you by day and I come to you at night. Now hear my prayer and listen to my cry. And for the rest of these verses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put yourself in the position of this psalmist and I want you to ask yourself if you can relate to what he's saying. I'm going to try to make what he's saying applicable to you by way of of explanation, but I want you to ask yourself, can I relate to what he's saying? And I want you to ask yourself if you've ever really noticed the honesty of the scriptures. Have you ever really noticed the depiction of real life in a real world and, and real pain and real hurt that's found in the scriptures, inspired by God. And I want you to ask yourself if you ever approached them this way, and I want you to ask yourself if you can relate to what this psalmist is saying. So look at verse 3. Here's what he's praying. Here's what he's crying out. My life is full of troubles, and death draws near. I am as good as dead, like a strong man with no strength left. They've left me among the dead, and like a corpse, I lie in the grave. I am forgotten, cut off from your care. I mean, have you ever felt deep and abiding despair? I mean, this is one of those emotions that it's even hard to articulate. I mean, you know the depth of despair that you know. I mean, can you, can you think of a time when you found yourself in as deep a despair and, and worry and desperation as you could ever feel? This is where this guy is. Have you, have you felt deep despair? Look at verse 6. You've thrown me into the lowest pit, into the darkest depths. Your anger weighs me down. With wave after wave, you have engulfed me. In the midst of your despair and your desperation, have you ever felt forsaken by God? Have you ever felt forsaken by Him as you find yourself in this pit? To verse 8, you have driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. Have you ever found yourself in that position of despair and and sense of overwhelming where you don't feel like there's anybody around you who understands? There's nobody who can truly get it. The people you thought were closest to you and knew you best in some way have abandoned you. They've forsaken you. They they just don't seem to understand what you're going through. He said, I'm in a trap with no way of escape. Have you ever felt helpless in your despair? I mean, have you ever felt that you're in the midst of a circumstance in a situation in which you see no light at the end of the tunnel? There is no end to what it is you're going through. It's never going to be fixed. It's too big to actually be solved. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been out, in some sense, on the edge of the roof, toes hanging off the ledge, inches away from feeling like you're just going to fall over the edge, and when you look down, there's nobody there to catch you? Nobody's come. Nobody's rallied at the bottom to catch you as you fall. This is what he's feeling. Look at verse 9. My eyes are blinded by my tears, and each day I beg for your help. I lift up my hands for your mercy. Are your wonderful deeds of any use to the dead? 
Do the dead rise up and praise you? Can those in the grave declare your unfailing love? Can they proclaim your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Can the darkness speak of your wonderful deeds? Can anyone in the land of forgetfulness talk about your righteousness? Have you ever felt like with all the despair and all the loneliness that even God himself has turned his back on you? Have you ever wondered in the midst of it if he actually really even cares? That's where he is in verse 13. Oh Lord, I cry out to you. I will keep on pleading day by day. Oh Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you turn your face from me? Verse 15. I have been sick and close to death since my youth. I stand helpless and desperate before your terrors. Do you always feel like bad things happen to you? Have you felt like a victim from the day of your youth? Have you felt like life has simply just conspired against you around every single corner? Nothing ever works out for you. Nothing's ever good for you. Everything's always against you. Everybody always leaves you. You're always lonely. You're always in despair. Have you ever felt that way? Psalmist says, your fierce anger has overwhelmed me. Your terrors have paralyzed me. They swirl around me like floodwaters all day long. They have engulfed me completely. You have taken away my companions and my loved ones. And the last part of this psalm, darkness is my closest friend. Have you ever felt like just giving up? Have you ever felt like giving up? There's just nothing left to go on. You just have nothing left to continue on in the midst of what you're going through. Have you ever just felt like darkness was your closest friend? Everybody's gone. Everything's wrong. Everything has fallen. Sorrow has overwhelmed you. Darkness is the only thing that befriends you anymore. That's a song inspired by God to be sung by the people of God when they come to the temple in the presence of God. And this week, I looked through three different hymn books, contemporary hymn books of different denominations, and each one has an appendix in the back of the hymn book that's called the Psalter, where they've taken the psalms and put them to music for the church to sing together so that the people of God can sing the psalms. All three hymns skipped Psalm 88. All three hymns took this song, inspired by God, to be sung by the people of God in the presence of God, and they skipped it, and they said, we don't want to sing that. We don't want to accept the invitation of the scriptures to come before God and worship and admit the reality of the world that we live in. We want to come into the presence of God's people to hear from God's word and admit our need and our weakness and our pain. We don't want to come into the presence of God and be honest with him. We'd rather sing something else. We'd rather admit something else. But if you're honest, Psalm 88 sounds a lot like real life, doesn't it? I mean, for some of you, the the descriptions of Psalm 88 may seem a little far away. It may seem a little far-fetched. But trust me, as long as you have breath in this life and days ahead, you will know what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 88 one day. If you can't relate now, you will be able to relate one day. And for those of you who have ever been afraid or even despaired of life itself, ever doubted God's love or God's faithfulness to you, hear this as we read Psalm 88. This is an invitation from God through his word to be honest. To be honest about your life, to be honest about this world, to be honest about your pain, to be honest about your sorrow. The Bible depicts a real people 
real people living in a real world with very real pain and struggle. It presents real people responding to real pain in very real and honest ways. But most importantly, the Bible presents us and introduces us to a real God for this real world. And that's what we're looking at in our series this fall and this morning. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, is how does the humanity of Jesus have anything to offer us in the midst of this hurting and very real world? What does the humanity of Jesus have to offer us, real people in a real world with very real pain? Our, our basis for this series that we're working from is the Nicene Creed. And this week we're introduced to the second section of the Creed, which really unpacks the, the person of, of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God. And the Creed is going to go like this. I'm going to actually read it. We're not going to read it together this morning. And then we're going to zero in on one particular line for the majority of our time together. The, the Creed will, will go like this. It says, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. So that first little thrust right there, that first thrust of the second section, right out of the chute, what the creed is affirming is that Jesus is God. And this will go back to what we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about there being one God and we talked about the historic doctrine of the Trinity. But for all of eternity, God has existed as one God in one essence in three persons. And now this creed is affirming right out of the gate when it's talking about Jesus that he is indeed God. He is fully God. But he's also fully man. He was fully God and he's fully man. And again, we're delving headlong into mystery. We're delving headlong with very finite minds and very finite hearts into the reality of the infinite. But Jesus was fully God and he was fully man and he was fully human. And we need to know this, we need to own this, we need to wrestle with what this means for our life because it makes a massive difference, a massive difference in how we actually respond to life in a very broken and very real world. He was fully God and fully man. And the creed goes on to say this, and this is where we're going to sit this morning. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to show you this in one place in the scriptures and then we're going to flip to another place where we're going to sit for the majority of our time. So let me show you this first in the scriptures. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Go from Psalm 88, take a right, go towards the New Testament, under the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. This is what the Apostle Paul says. We'll start in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of, what's the next word? God. So who's Jesus? Paul's being very clear. He's not being ambiguous about this. Who being in the very form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Jesus did not say that he wanted and he must remain in heaven and be worshipped by the angels and receive eternal worship from the angels and that he would not be obedient to the will of the Father and, and take on the mission of the Father to come to earth and to redeem and to rescue fallen humanity and save sinners. Instead, no, he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. 
And so here we have the eternal and omnipotent and preeminent God that we spoke of last week, literally getting off of his throne and coming into human history as a servant. We're seeing Jesus here in his humility, stooping down to be with us, as we sang this morning, because he loves us and because his will is to glorify the Father. So being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. So what Paul is saying is that when you see Jesus here on the earth, when you see his life here on the earth, you see him not in his glorious state of exaltation. You don't see him in the fullness of his glory. You see him in the humility of his incarnation. That he came into human history to live a fully human life, to serve, to serve you and I out of love, even though he's God. Even though he's fully God. How humble was he? Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself and served us by dying for our sins on the cross. And Paul will go on to say that therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and that means worship. Every knee will bow and worship Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means God. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is God to the glory of God the Father. And what Paul is saying is this, that Jesus Christ is God. And he did not have to do what he did. He did not have to do this, but he did. In humility and love, he humbled himself and came into human history to identify with us and to serve us by living the life that we were created to live and dying to pay the price for the life that we choose to live instead. He suffered in our place for our sins and died in our place for our sins on the cross. And then God vindicated that by raising him from the dead. Why did he do it? Because he loved us. And his will is to glorify the Father. And Jesus said of himself, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is huge for you and I. I mean, I just sped through what we could probably teach for months. What we could take apart phrase by phrase and word by word and unpack for months. We just sped through it, but it's huge. What what Paul is saying, what the 50,000 foot view of what he's saying is simply this. Our God is not one who stands back and looks down at you in the midst of this very real world, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your heartache and your despair and your loneliness. He doesn't look at you and go, ah, well, hopefully you can try a little harder. You know, if you you just really apply yourself, you, you might find a better way out of that circumstance. Our God is not one who sits back in the heavens and says, well, you made this bed in your sin. Now it's up to you to lie in it. That's not our God, and that's what Paul is saying. Our God is completely other. He's not one who stands apart, who looks down and says, well, you made the mess, you need to clean it up. He comes into human history, and he lives a full human life with the full range of human emotions, and he gets his hands dirty, and he gets his hands bloody, and he suffers in our place and dies for us. Why? Because he loves us, and because his will is to do the glory of his Father. And because of that, Paul said, Jesus is the one to whom when we're struggling 
when we're hurting, when we feel like we're failing, when we feel like our grasp on this life is slipping through our hands faster than we can squeeze onto it, he is the one, the only one, who can actually help us. Who can actually help us. The writer of the book of Hebrews will go on to say it a little bit differently, and this is where I want us to sit this morning. So if you can, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. If you're in Philippians, just take a right and keep going. Now get to the book of Hebrews. And we're actually going to talk a bit about what we read this morning in our responsive reading. And again, we're diving headlong into the mystery of an infinite God, fully God and fully human. And one of two things is going to be the result. When we get done reading and praying and trusting God to, by His Spirit, open up our hearts to see the beauty and the glory of God in the face of Christ, one of two things is going to happen in this. We're going to walk away with an ongoing and, and deeper appreciation and humility and awe for who He is and what He's done, or we're simply just going to have to scratch our heads and, huh? You know, that's really the two options, huh? Or awe. And so, if God's good to us, He'll... He'll give me words to help us avoid huh and get to awe. So Hebrews chapter 4, if you've gotten there, we're going to start in verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, since then, we have a great high priest. Now, let me just stop and just quickly try to explain this to you. A high priest is an Old Testament reference to a man who was responsible for carrying the sins of the people of God, the, the sins of Israel, into the presence of God to ask for their forgiveness. In essence, a high priest was a mediator between God and man. And what he would do is he would, he would take sacrifices that were offered by the people of God for their sins, and he would make that animal sacrifice and take that blood into the temple, into the holy of holies at times, one time through the year in the time of Passover. And he would, he would offer up that sacrifice and offer up that blood upon the altar in forgiveness for the people's sins. He was mediating between God and man. He was pleading man's case before God. This is what an Old Testament priest does. But he's going to explain a little bit more about the priesthood in just, a little, in just a minute, so we'll get there. But here's what you've got to understand. On this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, in the New Covenant and New Testament era, what the writer is saying is that we still have a high priest. We, we still have a high priest. It's just a particular high priest. This is what he's saying. So since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And if you just stop there, and I, and I told the first service, I'm going to tell you, I'm going I'm to restrain my temptation to, to really sit here and go off on this for a second. But if you remember last week when we talked about the eternality of God and, and how his eternal nature brings definition and, and meaning to the beginning of things like creation and time and space and being, that that's what it means for him to be eternal, is that he exists outside of time and space and that by his very creation of those things, they came into being. The writer just said, Jesus, our, our great high priest, has passed what? Through the heavens. This is a reference back to the eternality of, of God and the godness of Jesus. No matter how hard we try and how big a rocket we climb in and as far into space as we can go, you and I will never leave space. We will always be in space. He's just passed through the heavens. This is the eternality of, of God. But I can't sit, keep going, keep going. But since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So let me ask you, do you know what our confession is this morning? 
If we must hold fast to our confession, do you know what our confession is this morning? As followers of Christ, our our confession this morning is that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves, no matter what we do and how hard we apply ourselves and how smart we think we are and how capable we think we are and how talented we think we are. And no matter what people say about how great we are, there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right before an eternal and holy God. And we are in desperate need of his rescue, of his salvation, of his forgiveness, and of his mercy. That is our confession as followers of Christ this morning. We can't fix ourselves. And we're in desperate need of his forgiveness and his righteousness to stand before him. When the writer of Hebrews is talking about our confession, he's not talking about an abstract amount of doctrine or theology that we have to know. He's not talking about a confession that we're talking about with this Nicene Creed that systematizes all the teaching of the Bible into a nice and concise little package. He's talking about our confession as fallen people in a real world before an eternal and holy and righteous God. And he says, we've got to hold fast to this confession. This is the confession of a follower of Christ. It's the gospel. No matter how many people on TV and no matter how many books that get written in Philip's stores that want to tell you the confession of a Christian is that we're better than everybody else out there. They're not right. The confession of a Christian is that we're broken and we can't fix ourselves. And we need the redemption and the restoration that comes from God through his son. And so the writer says, hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast when despair is beginning to overwhelm. Hold fast when loneliness seems to be coming in and covering the light that you once saw. Hold fast when darkness seems to be your only friend. Hold fast to your confession. Because the minute we begin to let our grip slip on that confession and begin to reach out for something else to hold on to, we no longer have the gospel. And some of you are feeling like the faith that you have confessed, the hope to which you have confessed, the confession that we have of Christians is slipping through your hands faster than sand can fall through your fingers. That life is just setting in, that darkness is just setting in, that The struggles of life are just overwhelming and that pit of despair is there and that confession is falling through and the question you've got to ask if you're honest is how do I stop it? How do I stop it? It's slipping. I I can't hold it. How, How do I stop it? And that's what the writer of Hebrews has got for us from here. How do we do it? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Remember Psalm 88? There's a a reason why I read that. The scriptures say that Jesus, the Son of God, very God of very God, he can sympathize with you. And if you give yourself just a moment to be really honest about that and, and to just apply yourself for just a second to think about that, it's a staggering thought that Jesus, the Son of God, can sympathize with you in his humanity and your weaknesses. That he's not in heaven on the throne looking down at you and going, come on. Can't you just get it right this time? How many times are we going to have to go through this? How many times am I going to have to come over and pick you up and dust you off before you get this thing? Come on, get smarter. Do do better. Try harder. He's, He's not doing that. We don't have a high priest who 
cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but underline that every time in your Bible when you see that near Jesus. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Tempted to respond to the pressure points of life, to the struggles of life, to the circumstances of life in a way, in a thought, in a word, or in a deed, in any way that does not bring glory and satisfaction to his Father. That's what he's being tempted by. He's being tempted to respond to the fallen nature of life in a way that doesn't glorify God, just like you and I. And he's faced them. He's been tempted by them. He can sympathize with the weaknesses, yet he's been through them without sin. He's been through them without sin. And you've got to grab something real quick before we unpack that. You've got to be able to understand the distinction between temptation and sin. If you're ever going to understand this, you've got to understand the difference between temptation and sin. Because if you don't, the devil will have a field day with your conscience. He will have a field day with your conscience. Temptation is when you are presented with an opportunity to sin. Sin is when you simply follow through on it. We do not live in a world that is free from the presence of temptation. Jesus did not live on this earth in a world that was free from the presence of temptation. God has promised one day to redeem this world. And in a redeemed earth, in a new heavens for all of eternity, we will live with God free from the presence of temptation. But right now, that's not the case. You and I will never take a breath on this earth in a day in our life where we're free from the presence of temptation. And temptation is different than sin. Temptation is when you're presented with an opportunity to sin in thought, word, or deed. Sin is when you actually follow through with it. And opportunity came to Jesus. Opportunity came to Jesus to sin in his thoughts, in his words, or in his actions, but he did not avail himself to it. Yet you and I will be constantly tempted to do that. And when we think about this, when we're, when we're honest about this reality, and when we, when we give ourselves just a moment to think about it, The natural justification that bubbles up in our hearts is is what? Well, one of them is that Jesus didn't have to face the same things we have to face. Jesus lived in the first century. He was a Galilean peasant. He's not in the 21st century. Jesus doesn't know the internet. He didn't have to face what we have to face. In his life as a man, on this very fallen and broken world, Jesus experienced the full range of emotion and pain. And I was just trying to think of a few very tangible examples that I could really try to make it as real as I could for you. And, and there are two, two things I was thinking of that the, in the ways the Bible describes him and prophesies him coming that, that would give credence and maybe make connection with your life and your struggles with this. One, one in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah said that Jesus, or the Messiah when he was coming, In his life, on this earth, in his body, he would have no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should actually desire him. Have you ever felt that way? I want to talk about 21st century being an image-saturated culture. Beauty being defined by everything around you. Have you ever felt easily overlooked? Have you ever felt that there was no form or majesty about your presence, about your outward appearance? Anybody would ever dare pay any attention to you? And do you know how that feels? Do you know how that makes you feel? Do you know how you're tempted to respond? Do you know how you're tempted to want the beauty that someone else has? Do you know how far you're tempted to go to acquire it? He knows. He knows. Isaiah went on to say that in his life he was 
despised and rejected by men. One from whom men would actually hide their faces. Ever felt that way? Ever felt despised and rejected by people? Ever felt like your reputation went in front of you and everyone just shattered it? Everywhere you went, people turned their faces from you. You didn't feel like you had a home anywhere. Nobody accepted you. Nobody liked you. You know how that makes you feel? You know how you're tempted to respond? Jesus knows. He understands. He knows what it's like to come from a family that doesn't get him. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by friends. He knows what it's like to have expectations of other people and be let down. He knows what it's like to live on this earth. And as I was thinking about it, in 33 years of life here on this earth, Jesus, the Son of God, who humbled himself and did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself and took on the form of a servant in the image and likeness of man who walked this earth for 33 years, never at one point in his life on this earth did he ever get what he deserved. Can you, can you begin to think about the psychological weight of that? Every single day, not the respect, not the love, not the credit, not the companionship, not the loyalty. Every single day, he, he gets it. He gets it. Now, when you try to get your head around that, here's what begins to happen. As we get past our, our justification of the fact that he didn't face the same things we face when we begin to wrestle with it, underneath all the particular ways we face it, he faced the same thing, and he knows the same pain, and he knows the same weaknesses, and he knows the same temptations. We get to the, we get to the, the spot where we go, well, he's a member of the Trinity, and I'm not. I mean, he's God, and I'm not. And we begin to try to let ourselves off the hook and justify that, and, and the best way that I've ever heard that explained is that when we try to justify ourselves and when we kind of say, well, you know, he's God, I'm not, he can respond differently, what we're, what we're doing is that we're really portraying Jesus a lot like, like Clark Kent. And I didn't catch this. I heard somebody explain this to me, and I thought, well, it's brilliant. In his life on the earth, as meek and mild and humble, Clark Kent, everyone lived the life with Clark. Clark lived the same life with everybody else. He went through the same things that everybody else went through. But when the bullets started flying and the real pressure started and the calamities began to crash in, the bullets bounced off his chest. He could catch the falling meteor. He could do whatever he wanted. Why? Because he really wasn't Clark Kent. He was Superman. And that's the way we tend to approach Jesus. We begin to think, well, yeah, he was tempted in every way that I was. Yeah, he lived life on this earth, but he was God. He he really doesn't quite know what it is to be tempted. The writer of Hebrews can can sense this argument and this self-justification kind of bubbling up. And he's going to try to address it here going into Hebrews chapter 5. He's going to say this in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so Christ was appointed by him who said to him, he's talking about God right there. So what, what he's saying is that as a great high priest, he's going to explain this, this role again. He, these, priests, the, these priests, they had to have a few qualifications. They had to be men. They had to be chosen by God. 
No one could just show up at the front door of the temple and say that day, I'm going to be the high priest. I'm going to make the sacrifices and the intercession between man and God today. Give me the ephod and give me the flint knife and I'm going to go in and do it. No, you had to be chosen by God. And you had to be beset with weakness. If you were going to deal gently with the misguided and the ignorant, then is that not us? To deal gently with the misguided and the ignorant, you had to be beset with weakness. How was Jesus fully God and beset with weakness? Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, this is talking about when Jesus was here on the earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So the writer in Hebrews is trying to anticipate this and say, here's how he could be the great priest. Here's how he could be fully God and fully human. Here's how he could be fully God and be set by weakness. You remember a point in Jesus' life where he was crying to God with loud tears and cries, crying out to the one who was able to save him from death? Do you remember a time in his life? Of the garden. About moments before he was betrayed and taken to his death. The writer's trying to take you to a very specific point in Jesus' life to show you just how his humanity steps in to help us deal with this world that we live in. Matthew chapter 26. Let me show you this. Show you this. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. We're going to see a picture of what the writer in Hebrews is saying. Matthew says that Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples to sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, listen to this, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul, listen to this, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, don't don't do that Christian thing where you read the words and you hear me read the words and you disassociate yourself from real life and you disassociate what's going on here in the Bible from real life. This is real life. This is really Jesus. He was really human. This really happened. His soul was in anguish, even to the point of death. This is what's going on here. He's so overcome that he's grabbed his closest mates, the three of them. He's grabbed them and he said, listen, I am overcome. I am overcome. I'm to the point of wanting to die. Please, please come pray with me. Please come pray with me. And I know the scriptures right there say, please come pray, pray with me and not pray for me. But for me is implied in the with me because his soul was overcome and he's asking for prayer. And no matter how hard I looked, I couldn't find anywhere else in the Bible other than this moment where Jesus asked anybody to pray for him. This is where he is. He's overcome. He gets it. He gets it. He's overcome. And going a little further, Matthew said, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And I learned a little bit this week to help let Peter off the hook a little bit. So I know we bash Peter all the time with this. And you've heard preachers bash Peter with this, haven't you? Well, I learned a little bit this week about a first century Passover meal. 
It might take up to six hours. You know how many glasses of wine were in a first century Passover meal in six hours? Between four or five. So his eyes were a little heavy and his flesh was a little bit weak. So you can let Peter off the hook just a little bit here. It's late. It's been kind of a long night. But again, for the second time, Matthew said, verse 42, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. If there's another way, have you ever thought about this? He said, if there's another way, if there's any other route to your will being done that is opposite of this, if there's any way that you can accomplish your purposes on this earth for your people apart from this, please, I don't want to drink it. I don't want to drink it. He gets it. He gets it. He knows what it is to be in despair. He knows what it is to be overcome. He gets it. And then having, again, verse 43, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away, and he prayed for a third time. He said the same words again. And then he came to the disciples, and he said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And in this moment here in Gethsemane, every fiber of, of Jesus' body, every fiber of Jesus' being is, is praying, is, is crying out, let's get out of here. Let's go. Let's just get up and let's just leave. Let's get out of here. Ten minutes down the way, there are people coming to get me. If I don't get out of here, I'm going to be slaughtered in a matter of hours. Let's go. Let's get out. Everything in him wants to leave. And at that point in Gethsemane, all of the despair and all of the loneliness and all of the betrayal, all of it is beginning to set in on his body. All of the impending physical pain that he is about to endure as a man on this earth, all of the disappointment that is about to culminate in this moment is setting down on him. He's bearing down on him. And he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays until he's obedient. And then he steps forward, and he lets Judas kiss him. And this got me last night. He steps forward, and he lets Judas kiss him. And we make that such a mundane moment. We talk about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, and the kiss, and at that moment, the very lips that he created, the very muscles to make that kiss possible, that he spoke into existence and continued to hold into existence through the word of his power, he allowed to kiss him and betray him. He knows. He knows. He gets it. All that we read in Psalm 88 all the despair, all the loneliness, all the forsakenness, all the betrayal, all the darkness. He gets it. And because he knows, and because he gets it, according to the writer of Hebrews, he can be merciful and gracious to us in our time of need. And because of that, our response is to run 
It is to run not away from him, but to run to him in confidence. To run to him in confidence, to receive from him, not necessarily relief from what we're going through, but the grace and mercy we need in the midst of what we're dealing with to respond to it in a way that exalts God and honors God. Go back to verse 15. This is what I skipped. He said, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus, our great high priest, has lived the life that you were created to live, and he has faced all the same pain and all the same temptation and all the same weaknesses that you have faced, yet he never responded to them in sin, in thought, in word, or in deed. Then in his humility, in his humility and in his service, he sacrificed his life in your place for your sin. And this great high priest did not just walk into the temple and offer an animal sacrifice in your place for your sin. This great high priest offered up his body in your place for your sin. He died and was buried. And God accepted his sacrifice in your place and he raised Jesus from the dead. And now Jesus, our great high priest, the one who didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, the one who humbled himself and came and took on the form of a servant, the one who took on the image and the likeness of man, who served us in love by being the sacrifice in our place for our sins, has now been raised and passed through the heavens and is seated on his throne. This is our great high priest. And what does the writer say characterizes his throne? Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. And what Jesus says is this, come to me, all of you who are heavy and burdened. All of you who are overwhelmed. All of you who are in despair. All of you who feel like the darkness has closed in and that's all you have to grab a hold. Come to me, all who are heavy and burdened, and I'll give you mercy. I'll give you grace. And that that will be your rest. What does the humanity of Jesus have to offer you and I in the midst of a broken and, and very hurting world? It has everything. It has everything. It has everything. Because he was fully man, he could sympathize with our weaknesses. If he was not fully man, he couldn't sympathize with our weaknesses. But because he was and because he did and because he responded to the temptation that comes in the midst of them without sin, he conquered sin in our place. And he did for us what we could never do. And he gives us the confession that we have to hold fast to. Yes, life is hard and yes, life is often very painful and yes, maybe life has dealt very harshly with you. And yes, you have sinned in your response to it. And yes, you have hurt others in your sin, in your response to this life. But hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your confession. Quit trying to impress God. Quit trying to fix yourself and then bring yourself to God and offer up a better version of yourself to God. Quit trying to impress him. Run with confidence to him. This is what he's saying. Run with confidence to him. He knows. He gets it. He understands. He's been faced with the same thing. Run to him. Don't run away from him. Run to him. 
and receive from his hand, not necessarily relief from the pain, but the grace and mercy to respond to it, the grace and mercy to endure in it, the grace and mercy needed to be transformed into his image through it. Run to him. Run to him. Some of you, some of you, I don't even, I don't even know all of you. I don't even know probably a third of you, but some of you are in here and you feel like that confession is slipping through your grasp. It's running through your hand faster than you can even seem to get a hold of it. And you're at the place where you really just want to give up. I mean, you're at the place where you really just want to give in. And, and here's what I was thinking about as I was praying for you this morning. The truth really is, you've never actually tried Jesus. You've never actually tried coming with confidence to his throne to receive the grace and the mercy that you need in your time of need. You've tried his church. You've tried people. You've tried the church. You've tried his bride, but you've never actually tried Jesus. So in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your confusion, in the middle of the darkness, in the midst of the pit of despair, scriptures are offering you an invitation to come to come and to be healed, to come and to be restored, to come and to be forgiven, to come and to receive the grace and mercy that comes from the one who has tasted in the same weaknesses that are besetting you, who's tasted them and who's overcome them, the one who was faithful in the midst of them, even when everything around him began to collapse. This is the invitation that the scriptures are offering you. And if you're not a follower of Christ this morning. That's never actually been your confession. I, I don't even know the right and the strong enough and the most gracious enough word to actually say, I implore you, I invite you, I, I, I don't even know a better word to receive the grace and mercy that comes from Jesus, to come with confidence this morning to his throne, to be saved by his mercy, to be saved by his grace. He alone is the one that can offer you the grace and the mercy that you so desperately want, that you so desperately need. He alone is the one who can offer that. He alone is the one who lived the life that we could not live and he died the death that we should have died and he rose to give forgiveness and grace and mercy that we do not deserve. There's no one like him. There's no one like Jesus. So my prayer for us this morning, my prayer for you, my prayer for myself, my, my prayer for this church is that we would run, that you would run, that you would run not away from God in the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your weaknesses, not that you would run away from God in the midst of the temptations that you face in this fallen world, but that with confidence you would run to him, that you might receive his grace and his mercy, that you would find his help in your very real and very present time of need. That's the difference that the humanity of Jesus makes in the way we respond and live life in the midst of a very fallen and very broken world. Let me, uh, let me pray for us this morning. Father, it's a very... Uh, It's a scary thing for me to pray for myself and for the rest of us, but I pray that I pray that you not save us from the pain and the heartbreak of this world. If by that pain and that heartbreak it would compel us to run to your throne with confidence, to taste of your grace and to taste of your mercy. 
Lord, thank you for making a way to rescue us and redeem us. And I would ask very simply that by your Holy Spirit, you would make the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus beauty to our hearts this morning, wisdom to our souls. And Lord, may we run to your throne this morning with confidence for the first time or the first time in a very long time. And in this, Lord, would you be honored and you be glorified. Amen.